Phil Lowe, the RBA and the ideology trying to keep the rich richer and the rest of us poorer, more Morrison-era misery, and Roger Cook is the new WA Premier, plus good news about renewable energy. This is The Week on Wednesday. Hello and welcome to The Week on Wednesday. I am your co-host Ben Davison, and joining me with Germanicus on her lap is the great, the glorious, the best-selling author of QAnon, A Short and Shocking History of Internet Conspiracy Cults, and recent speaker at an AMWU event in Queensland. I had the best time. Van Batham. How are you, Van? I'm pretty good. I have this very cute dog. Have you have you noticed how cute this dog is? He is very cute. He is very, very cute. Uh, so if we get a bit distracted, it's because we're looking at the dog going, oh... And look, the AMW, of course, is the Australian Manufacturing Workers Union. And a big shout out to all of our union comrades who listen to this show, whatever union you're in. Uh, It's been a big week for the union movement with uh, changes to bargaining laws, meaning workers have gained additional power to uh, get better outcomes in their wages and conditions. If you're not already a member of your union, now is a good time to join. Oh, you should absolutely join. Australianunions.org.au slash wow. That's our special link. Special link for us. Uh, but of course, it doesn't matter what uh, industry you're in, you can join using that link. Uh, and of course, Van, everyone who has been supportive of the show over the last 12 months has been just so fantastic. You know, we've seen people join the union. We've obviously had people sharing the show. Uh, and we're rapidly approaching a million downloads. So I get my party. Yeah, well, look, this episode might tip us over to 900,000. So on our way. A million downloads, I get a party, Ben promised. <laughs> and, of course, I, we always give a shout-out to our cadre and Extend the Reach supporters at the end of the show. But I want to just give a shout-out to everyone who has contributed to making the show such a success, you know, whether they've liked, shared, Give them once, give them a buck a week, whatever contribution. Played to friends, played on pickets. We're always amazed to hear that people play the show to like groups of people and discuss it and use it as a point to have talks about economics and politics and the rest of it. And we want to announce that we're going to try something. This was suggested by a reader that Ben's amazing knowledge about um, economics and my, you know, phenomenal grasp of modern Marxist political theory. If you have a question that you want answered, something to do with politics or economics, um, you know, science, I mean, we can try. I mean, I'm pretty good <laughs> at research. But if you have a question that you'd like us to answer, so, and please email it to us, and Ben's going to try and make a point of answering them on the weekend wrap. Yeah, that's right. So you can email the week on Wednesday at gmail.com. Uh, if you uh, ask a question, we will try and answer it. Uh, Always appreciate comments, but comments won't be read on the show. This is not a branch meeting. It is a podcast. And on that, I would very much like to thank our enemies who listen to the show from time to time for bumping us up the charts. It's fantastic promotion that you give us. Every time you're mean to us or say narky comments, we tend to pick up new subscribers, which is just fantastic. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, we'd also like to apologize. You might hear the rain in the background. We live in beautiful regional Victoria and while it is a stunning landscape, it is absolutely insanely cold and wet and our internet has been coming and going all day. Oh, country living, what a luxury. So if this does come out late, 
Uh, hopefully Ben and I haven't smashed our computers in frustration, which seemed like it could be a possibility a few hours ago. And, of course, we want to give a huge uh, shout-out, congratulations, and thank you to the people who have made a financial contribution because all of that money goes back into the show. Uh, Can't stop the rain, though. Microphones when we break them, (laughs) uh, extending our audience. So, uh, And I appreciate, in particular, Van, over the last 12 months, people have obviously been struck by the cost of living crisis that this country has been experiencing uh, and so for those who have been able to make a financial contribution, it is very much appreciated. But let's talk a little bit about that cost of living crisis because it is being fueled by Phil Lowe, the governor of the Reserve Bank, the high priest of monetary policy, the man whose 1970s ideological belief system refuses to be shaken regardless of by the reality. Facts, yeah. Uh, who increased interest rates uh, yesterday again for the twelfth time in thirteen months. Now, I don't need to tell you or all the people listening to this podcast that that means higher mortgages, higher rents, higher cost of living for everyday Australians because everybody knows that. But we should actually quantify what some of this means because it's now gotten really, really large. Fifteen thousand dollars a year is how much the average mortgage has gone up in the last 12 months. $15,000. It's now, shocking. It's shocking. I mean, that's that's a part-time job that you have to get to cover the change in your mortgage. Well, it's funny you say that because Phil Lowe today, on the Wednesday, the day after his increased interest rates, is still trending uh, because he, of course, Instead of doing a press conference to announce the rate increase and answer questions and engage in a frank and fearless debate, what he normally does is he does a lunch the day after. He'll go to a particular business group or some kind of, you know, fancy, you know, group of bosses, have lunch, give a speech, and then take some questions from the floor, usually not from journalists, usually from people who've bought a ticket to be there. Uh, now, for lunch today, and I don't know if people bought tickets or not today, to be perfectly clear, but at the lunch today, he made the point that, yes, the Reserve Bank is aware that the latest interest rate increase, which has driven the cash rate to 4.1%, the highest in 11 years, will mean that some households have a negative cash flow situation. That means that the amount of work they're doing, the amount they're getting paid is not covering their living costs. So they're dipping into savings or they're borrowing money or whatever they're doing to make ends meet. Phil Lowe has suggested that what people could do, and this is where your uh, suggestion of a part-time job is particularly uh, insightful, is that Phil Lowe said people could just work more. Just work more. Just work more. Just, yeah. Or spend less money. Spend less money yeah. or work more. Work more. It's a really... How many hours do Australians work a week now? Like a billion? So we should just add another half a billion. No yeah. problem. It's a but, huge amount of... I mean, I know you and I have got all the free time in the world to take on extra part-time jobs each, Ben. What do you reckon? Oh, look, it, it is ridiculous. Australia has some of the highest rates of part-time work. Uh, we are at record levels of people already working multiple jobs. I love how we can just work more. 
there's no responsibility on employers to create job opportunities for people. Well, I've noticed this is a bit of a theme with Philo, like employers, big business, you know, people who hoard wealth, massive capital funds. They don't have any responsibilities in the economy apart from just to trickle a bit, just have a trickle, just have a bit of a trickly, trickly, trickle. And yet the rest of it, we've just got it. We've got to invent the economic conditions for our own prosperity, completely irrespective of the means of production that we don't own. And it's also actually counter to his stated aims, right? I mean, this is why people get so frustrated, I think, is that that not only is Phil Lowe ignoring the reality that there are record levels of profits in things like supermarkets, in mining co- companies, all sorts of parts of the economy there is proven price gouging. Even the European Central Bank has had to uh, point out that this is the case. Nest right? of communists. Like uh, UBS, the investment bank, has has said- Filthy pinkos. Has, has said that there is clearly um, profit gouging happening. Phil Lowe rejects this idea. At the same time as he's telling us to work more, he also says we need unemployment to go up more and for- and he continues to suggest that somehow or another there is this wage price spiral, that the wages are going to get out of control and that's driving inflation. But they might be. They might. Well, they haven't. It's been a year of interest rate you know, rises. Women might also give birth to unicorns. That could happen. Well, I don't think it can happen. And I think the reality is that it's not going to happen. Uh, and quite frankly, Van, Phil Lowe froze interest rates, I think it was in April. It was just the meeting just before the review into the Reserve Bank was the one time in the last year that they haven't raised interest rates. Since then, he has absolutely laid the boot in every single time. So, Ben, I want you to explain to people who ran the review and what the review was. So the review of the Reserve Bank was to look at the performance of the Reserve Bank and its fit-for-purpose position in the Australian economy. And this was run by? Treasury. Treasury, by the federal government, by the department that administers the money. Correct. So this was something that Jim Chalmers, the treasurer. Dr. Jim. Had said that he would do. uh, And it was, you know, it, it was critical. It was critical of the Reserve Bank. It was critical of the way the Reserve Bank operates, the way the Reserve Bank communicates. And it was critical of Phil Lowe particularly given that 13, 14 months ago, he was saying there wouldn't be any interest rate rises for three years. Now, all the caveats were ignored, so on and so forth, but the reality is the market and individuals responded to the idea that interest rates weren't going to go up. Now, interest rates have gone up substantially. The costs for people have gone up substantially. It's also interesting to note that This latest decision came the day before our economic data, so the gross domestic product data, the data that shows how our economy is faring. That's interesting that they would make a decision on interest rates before the data was out. Yeah, well, this is what people have pointed out because actually what the data says is incredibly different to what Phil Lowe was saying yesterday because what the data shows is that real unit labour costs, this is the kind of, you know, wages are going to have an impact on inflation, this is the measure that you use, only went up 0.1% in the March quarter 
and only 1% over the course of the whole year. So not inflationary at all. Like that is below the inflation target of 2 to 3%. So almost no impact on inflation. The dog is disgusted. Unemployment has gone up from a record low of 3.5. Record low in the modern era. In the modern era. I knew you'd point that out. Uh, but to 3.7, right? So there's been a slight uptick in unemployment. Keeping in mind Phil Lowe's answer to if you can't afford things, get another job, somehow doesn't quite gel with his we need higher unemployment, right? So there are a whole range of these uh whole range of these measures that have come out today which clearly show that the problem is actually more a Phil Lowe problem than it is an economic problem. I'll give you some of the reasons why he thought uh, interest rates had to go up yesterday. He said that while goods price inflation, that is the price we pay for goods, has slowed, service price inflation is still very high and proving to be very persistent overseas. Now, I'm trying to work out what that has to do with us. Almost nothing. So uh, you and I were talking before the show, and you were like, if a massage has become more expensive in Los Angeles, it is not really our problem. Correct. It, It has almost no impact. And the services that are more expensive here, things like educational services, uh, things like uh, uh, medical services are things that government has, through the budget, put in place measures to reduce the cost of, reduce the cost of medicines, reduce, improve Medicare bulk billing. All of these things are in the pipeline uh, and beginning to take effect. But, of course, Phil Lowe is not thinking about those. He's not accounting for that in the way that he's making these decisions. The reality is that he has continued to try and make the point that this is a somehow or another a problem for working people. That working that we created. That we are creating the problem. Through our greed. Our greed, the greed of working people, because that's what it gets down to, Ben. The outrageous effrontery of people who work for other people for a living to say, please, sir, may I have some more? What what goal? Well, and the other point I want to make is that here in Australia, one of the key kind of metrics of people's confidence in the economy is retail spending and retail food spending. So are people going out to eat? Are they get buying takeaway? And those numbers have been incredibly, incredibly flat. So food retailing actually went backwards by 0.1%. Cafes, restaurants, and takeaway services fell by 0.2%. And total retail sales, this is just going to a shop and buying a T-shirt or, you know, a couch or whatever you might buy in a shop. A hat. Mm. A fancy, fancy hat. Uh, that has that has gone from uh, 0.2% increase to 0.4% increase and is now at zero in the last in that's over the last three months. They're the three figures. The annual increase is only 2.4. So the majority of what consumers, working people spend their money on is captured in those in terms of discretionary things. Non-discretionary is mortgages, rent, fuel, health services, education services. Those are non-discretionary. But we are not going out there spending up big on fancy new hats and takeaway food. It's a fancy new hat recession. 
you know, it is absolutely the case that this is being driven by profiteering. It's being driven by supply chain problems. And look, Jim Stanford, who the noted economist from the uh, Center for Future Work. Who we love. He, he made this point. I want to quote him. He said, 10 references to wage growth, tight labor markets and rising unit labor costs in today's RBA statement on its 12th interest rate hike in 13 months. Zero references to profits, margins or markups. The RBA sees only one side of the street. So workers pay to solve inflation they didn't cause. And that's the fundamental problem here. Oh, it is disgusting to think that the Reserve Bank of Australia paying attention to only one side of the street seems to think that unemployment is an economic solution of any kind. Like I just want everybody to get their heads around that, that they genuinely think if only we have more unemployed people, which will put downward pressure on wages because unemployment is so awful and so terrifying that working people won't join unions or won't rock the boat or they'll just live in fear and misery at their own working conditions rather than risk being unemployed. But that is not a solution. The yeah. point of an economy is to ensure that everybody has a job. That's the point, that everybody is a productive member of the society and enjoys the social benefit of work. And the idea that you would structure an economy around a value of obliging a percentage of the population into unemployment is it's sick. It's it genuinely sick. That is not a solution. That is like going into a doctor saying, I've got a cold, and then cutting off your head. Well, it's interesting you put it that way because in its pursuit of higher unemployment and somehow or another, uh, like, so what the RBA is trying to do, right, is it's trying to, and we've discussed this before on the show, Phil Lowe's ideological position is this. If there's higher unemployment, Firms, companies will be forced to discount prices because people have less money to spend because they won't be employed and therefore inflation will decrease, which will mean that prices will come down, employment will increase again, but prices will be lower and this is the kind of inflationary, deinflationary cycle, right? And you could stabilise somewhere if you had 4 or 5% unemployment, then you'd stabilise inflation at 2 to 3%. And that's what he's aiming for. These are all... These are all ideological, um, theoretical concepts. That are not borne out by reality. And haven't been for a long, long time, right? In the decade leading up to COVID, the RBA was not in its inflationary target, right? It was not <laughs> hitting 2 or 3%. It was below, sometimes above, mostly below. But, you know, there was none of this kind of, oh, well, we have to get more people into jobs, Phil Lowe wasn't as concerned about getting people into jobs when inflation was low, but somehow or another, he's quite concerned about getting them out of jobs now that inflation is high. Now, there are other levers that can be pulled here, right? One of the points I want to make is that, so Cos Samaras tweeted this. We love Cos from Redbridge, the consulting group. So he put out uh, a table showing uh, household spending and how it's been declining over the course of the last three months. And in Tasmania and the Northern Territory, we're getting really, really low levels of spending. So even though inflation is at 6.8%, so you would think 6.8% would be where people would be spending. 
No, no. You're talking about numbers with twos and threes in Tasmania and Northern Territory. Cos says, and I quote, what a circus. They are akin to a bunch of old mystics fixated on a dead monetary doctrine, even though it clearly is not working and not applicable to a supply-driven inflation environment. One regional food bank in Victoria is shipping out 40 tonnes of food every day. So, Describe my face. Yeah, the shock on your face tells me, one, how awful this is, and two, you don't read the briefs very very closely. (laughs) But, But it also points out that- I can be shocked more than once. That they are ideological commitments to a theory, not- actually responding to the reality in which we find ourselves. And they are bleeding the vast majority of people to try and achieve this. So, yes, there will be a group of people who are most impacted. They will lose employment. They will lose their income. Some people will probably start to lose their homes, certainly lose equity in their homes. But the rest of us are also bleeding as well. So a big proportion of Australians are being bled for this theory to try to try and make this theory work. Now, there are other solutions. There are other solutions to an inflation crisis. And in fact, Menzies, the founder of the Liberal Party, when faced with an inflation Notorious crisis. Notorious You know what he did, Van? What did he do, darling? He raised taxes on the wealthiest and on corporations. I did actually know that. I know you did. And and this is this is what you know Labor has tried to do a little bit of in this in this budget, right? In the latest budget. It did raise taxes on oil and gas companies. Uh, it did make uh, adjustments to the budget so there'd be a budget surplus. That's another thing you do when you're in government is that you withdraw the supply of money from non-essential uh, services, so you know there's less money in the economy to be spent. But fundamentally, Phil Lowe is ignoring all of those things. He is bleeding everybody, except for, except for the very, very wealthiest and the corporations who are in a position to make a substantial amount of money. I just find it amazing. Like it is just a, it's a topsy turvy land assessment of what economics is supposed to be. So. <clears throat> So he's not punishing. He's not punishing. Punishing is the wrong word. He's not accommodating the demands on the economy by addressing them at a point where change could result. Correct. Essentially, that's what's happening. If you tax rich people more, if you tax corporations more, they're still rich. Like they still have assets. They still have capital. No one is going to tax a multinational corporation to the point where it can no longer function. Like this is what is just so enraging. So it's like working people can will not get wage rises mm. despite the fact mm. that things are going up. Um, there will be pressures on the economy for more people to lose their jobs, mm. including household burden, dealing with unemployment, All of the welfare spending, by the way, that has to go around that. I note the people Mm. who are very happy to theoretically decide that we need more unemployed people are not quite so happy practically to give those unemployed people more money so they can eat and pay rent. Right. This also, let's remember, punishes small business because when 
wages are not going up where households mm. have less discretionary spending, where are they not spending it? Well, you just made this point. They're not spending it on retail. They're not spending it on hospitality. It's not going into the traditional sites of where small business is. And and the point is, Van, that the idea, part of the idea that Phil Lowe is trying to get across is there has to be increases in productivity, right, and that actually we also want to uh, make sure that businesses are using their money effectively and wisely in order to increase productivity. But the the engine room of the modern Australian economy is small business. It's these retail, it's these hospitality, it's the sole trader, it's the contractor. Services. It's services. Uh, and so, yeah, there's some stickiness in services. But let's be really clear about this. Big business is doing really well. So Sally McManus, the leader of the Australian Union movement, the ACTU, has made the point that the big four banks – have been posting huge profits. The Commonwealth Bank posted a $5.15 billion half-year profit. Uh, Coles posted a $616 million profit uh, over just half a year. Ampol, $440 million. And Qantas, $1.4 billion. But Ben, what about the shareholders? Well, the shareholders are doing very well. But what about them? The shareholders are doing very well. I mean, they're very important, don't you think? But the problem here is, the problem here is, that these companies now, instead of borrowing to invest, to grow their business, to employ more people, to perhaps buy that piece of machinery that would make them more productive, to train their staff so that they are more able to be more productive, are essentially hoarding these profits. They see a high inflationary environment. They see challenging business conditions ahead. They see the likelihood of a recession continue to increase. So the incentive for these companies in this environment is to gouge as much profit as you can now because there may not be as much profit in the future and the time value of money theory, which is another thing Phil Lowe I'm sure is very much familiar with, tells us that a dollar today is worth more than a dollar in a year's time. And given the way inflation is going, given the way Phil Lowe runs the monetary policy, that will undoubtedly be even more true. But I also love this fantasy they live in about industrial innovation and entrepreneurship. And it's like that was true during the Industrial Revolution when there was no such thing as copyright, where if somebody invented a steam engine, you could just copy the steam engine and then improve some bits and nobody could, like, pursue an IP Mm -hmm. case against you and the rest of it. And it's this whole notion of, oh, well, you know, capitalism is going to make all this money. And it's like if you haven't seen an overweight gentleman in a top hat and tails with a monocle going around administering these businesses, let me tell you, the, the the image that you have of how capitalism works is is not what it, it is in the popular imagination. They're not investing. No. They're, they're not seeking out new opportunities. They're not inventing new things. They're not training huge cadre of people. Like I read an article for The Guardian years ago about how I think that it should be on business to pay back people's hex debts, that if you are benefiting from the tertiary education of an employee, Mm, mm. like, you know, my collection of fantastic degrees in dramaturgy, which are very valuable, but specifically looking at something like your MBA, there should be a premium on that. Mm. And because the business or venture, because they rely on that education, that they should pay for it, that it Mm. shouldn't be incumbent on the students, we want graduates to go out in the world and give their skills to society and mm. to give back. That's why we have taxpayer-funded education. But this is 
like it's this nonsense that we won't train people. We'll just ship in cheap labour from overseas. And I note that the Labor government, Andrew Giles, has been pursuing an end to exploitation of migrant workers in this country, which is some of the most transformative policy happening in Australia at the moment. You know, to end that exploitation of Mm. migrant labour is crucial for all of us. But this notion that, you know, these amazing, inventive, incredible capitalists and this fantasy that people like Jack Dorsey or Elon Musk or any of those other, like, exposed loons have the solution to anything. Well, they they clearly don't, Ben. And, you know, (laughs) Australia, I've mentioned before about the poor state of Australian management in general, but let's look at Europe, right, because, you know, we often turn to Europe as a good example of the balance between uh, capitalism and democracy because these are two, originally, two conflicting ideas brought together in a marriage in order to prevent the rise of communism or the spread of fascism. So the capitalist democracy concept is perhaps at its most balanced in some parts of Europe. But even in Europe, where you've got stronger state institutions, stronger democratic institutions, they are suffering from this same problem. Now, they're more prepared to talk about it. They're more prepared to call it out. In France, more prepared to throw petrol bombs at it, of course. (laughs) But, of course, you're talking about margins. Uh, Margins uh, are now an average of 10.7% up on last year in Europe. Right, that's the that's the increase in the profit that companies are making. That is up twenty five percent over what they were getting before the pandemic. Right, so this idea that oh well, you know, it's it's not profiteering. Uh, we have to be careful about this wage stuff. Um, you know, there are worker shortages, and that's that's going to be a problem. Well. It's been a year of this narrative, right? And this narrative has not done anything other than blame working people for a problem created by mega corporations. And when I say this, this survey from Europe, 106 companies, right, were surveyed. And it, and it ranges from luxury French resorts to Nordic retailers to German manufacturers, like it's across. I mean, I love all of these things. It's across the board, right? So it's not just one part of the corporate environment that's doing this. It's everyone in the corporate environment has seen an opportunity to profiteer. The problem is that if Phil Lowe and the other mystics at the Reserve Bank don't call this out, then it's harder and harder to address. Because if they continue with this narrative that it's workers who are the problem or could become the problem. But they might. Then it's harder and harder for governments to do things like support the minimum wage increase. But, Ben, you and I could get attacked by wild rabbits. And that, that's a thing that could happen. It could happen. We should prepare for that. But the other the other reality is that the political will gets gets undermined, right? So the minimum wage went up last week, uh, you know, 5.75% for people on awards, uh, 8% for people on the very lowest rate. Fulow has said that won't be inflationary, but already in the last two days we've seen the Liberals attack the minimum wage increase in the context of the interest rate rise and by cherry-picking 
elements of Phil Lowe's warnings, in inverted commas, about a wage price spiral. I mean, what if it snowed marshmallows, Ben? I mean, that could happen. Well, I think what we have to acknowledge that, and this is this is from uh, an economist at the Vienna Institute for International Economic Studies, a, uh, a Mr. Philip Heimberger said the public discourse to some extent is detached from what's actually happening out there. You know, and that's the reality. The public discourse is detached from what's actually happening. There is no wage price spiral. This is not the 120,000 people in our employment market of 13 million plus who are getting the 8% minimum wage increase driving up the prices at the supermarket. That's not what's happened. What's happened is the supermarket has gone, you know what? We've got an opportunity here to charge people more money and actually Phil Lowe is going to give us coverage on this by blaming workers who are getting paid less than uh, the cost of things we're putting up anyway. So let's just keep putting them up until, you know, people stop buying. That's what's going to happen. And this is the thing. Like this is when they – when we talk about really raw neoliberal economics, it's a it's a, a brutal brutal way of thinking about consumption. Just make things as expensive as possible until people stop paying for them. Yeah, you know, like or or half of your market dies of starvation and you can't sell as many products anymore, so produce less at a different price. Like that's really what it gets down to. And I don't recommend reading Milton Friedman on an empty stomach. And given the cost of living, that's probably yeah. a more likely state to be in at the moment. But getting your head around what these people actually believe, like I think Cosa's being very polite, calling them mystics, actually, because in this weird free market zealotry where human beings are sort of expendable to market logic. Yeah. And and the reality is that we live in a consequence of that where people are in pain and suffering and terrified and likely to lose ownership of the homes over their heads. And that will happen. If, yeah. Like the idea that a household will need to find an extra $15,000 in a year for their mortgage. And I understand if if you are loaded, like $15,000 is what? A couple of hands of cards, maybe a nice weekend away, you know, but for the majority of us, $15,000 is still a fair chunk of change. Well, for Phil Lowe, it's about 1% of his annual salary, right? Well, then. So, I mean, this is what we have to also put into context. That they live in a complete bubble of privilege and wealth, that they judge everybody as a failure who is not of their social milieu, which they have not only created but buttressed by pulling up the ladders that anybody else could climb to enjoy any kind of comparable standard of living. I think one of the things that I want to stress too, and, and uh, Pasco wrote about this in the New Daily. Love him. Is that- it's All of our favourite men on the show today. <laughs> yeah. Um, Cos Samaras, Jim Stanford, Michael Pasco, legends all. There are some great uh, women economists, I should say, as well. Fiona McDonald is doing some great work. Uh, in uh, particularly around the gig economy and economics, uh, well worth your time reading some of her work. Not to mention our ongoing uh, uh, friendly fighters at per capita, Emma Dawson, who's yeah. put out a tool like a um, the, inequality of, index. the inequality index, which certainly we recommend people check out. Uh, and of course, Alison Pennington's book, which you helped launch. Love uh, Alison. So there are some great uh, women in the economic space as well. I just wanted to make that point. Um, but Pasco today has, he's made the point that the Reserve Bank governor is somewhat 
reactionary, not just to the data, which is obviously out of date the day after he's made this announcement. Like, it's just so bad. The, the, Kukoulos has said we are in a per capita recession. Stephen Kukoulos is yeah. a labor economist. Who we yeah. These are, these are, we are in a per capita recession. Um, growth is completely down. Uh, and yet, somehow or another, the Reserve Bank, when these sorts of numbers came out 12, 13, 14 years ago, the Reserve Bank was cutting interest rates. Now it's put him up. Pasco says, and I think he's got a point, essentially this is Phil Lowe having a tanty over the review. This is because in September Phil Lowe's term of office will expire. Uh, he was uh, he, one of the Liberals at the Senate estimates that he appeared at last week said, well, I hope to see you again next estimates, which of course will be after September these are seven-year appointments. He's been the Reserve Bank governor for seven years. He's unlikely to be reappointed. Like, let's just call a spade a shovel. He is unlikely to be reappointed. His performance has been poor. The review was somewhat scathing of his performance. I think the vast majority of Australians have lost confidence in his leadership of the bank. Given the fact they're the ones being hit with said shovels. And I cannot see a world in which Jim Chalmers sits back and goes, you know, I really want to wear the political burn of reappointing someone who has done nothing but hurt working people. I think that will be good for me and my government and the Commonwealth of Australia. I don't see Dr. Jim Chalmers, who has an economics uh, doctorate, making that statement, right? I don't think that's going to happen. So, and, and it's not like Phil Lowe's an idiot, right? He might be ideologically blind. He might be entrenched uh, in a bubble that is so far from reality he can't see the rain falling on his own window, but he- <laughs> That was beautiful, a beautiful piece of environmental commentary. Thank you, Ben. It is so cold, yes. But he is not an idiot, and he knows he's not likely to be reappointed after September, right? So there's an element of this where this is a upper middle class uh, in the spotlight, middle-aged white man who, quite frankly, is about to lose his platform. Now, I'm not shedding any tears for that because I am certain that Phil Lowe will find himself inundated with offers from ASX 200 companies to come and sit on the board or consult for large amounts of money. He'll probably end up getting a pay rise, right? But he's not going to get the monthly media attention and he's not going to get as many lunch invites. He's going to get identity death. That's what they call this phenomenon. Yeah. It's one of the reasons why politicians go mad, like if yep. they're looking at losing their seat. So, And somebody like Mark Latham, good example. Wow, yeah. Amazing stories about Mark Latham this week who made off with some of the artworks in an exhibition at Parliament House that had to be retrieved by security. And can I just say, who even does that? But obviously after losing an election, yeah. he experienced identity death, lost the leadership of the Labor Party, lost the election, didn't know who he was anymore drifted into a new one nation land, one nation, absolutely never going to be part of government, spouts off about whatever he likes and uh, has to have artworks that are mysteriously in his possession retrieved by Parliament House security. And, look, you know, I'd like to think that Phil Lowe won't go around nicking artworks from Parliament Houses. Um, Look, I really (laughs) hope that doesn't happen because once it's sort of funny, but if it becomes a pattern, this country's in serious trouble. But I think there is an element where Pascoe is absolutely right. This identity death 
problem for Phil Lowe uh, is real, it's happening, and we're all paying the cost. Like, I don't, I can't think of, even with the Mark Latham example, right, even with the examples of leaders of political parties, I can't think of another individual whose identity death process has had such a negative impact on so many Australians. Like, it is... It is phenomenal. It is it is a bizarre phenomenon to be living through that this guy, because he's likely to lose his job in September, is just like, I'm just gonna burn it all down. I'm just gonna and every month I'm just gonna say some random nonsense that the next day will probably be proven to be untrue. But I'm gonna say it anyway. And then I'm gonna double down on it with some other nonsense that contradicts the nonsense I said the day before. Like it is. Bizarre, and because he's so softly spoken, he's such a gentle-faced man. You know, he's he's not a Mark Latham kind of bruiser. It, it's like it's taken us this long to wake up to the fact that actually there are some deeply insecure elements to the way this man conducts his operations, and that maybe, just maybe, that's having an impact on the policy decisions that he's making. Well, no one wants to admit they have an ugly baby. I believe <laughs> is the term that we all learn on. Uh- Election night in Victoria. Was it in Victoria or kind of was South Australia? I can't even remember, but an absolute classic of the genre. And I mean, it's part of it, isn't it? Like the ideology of neoliberalism was so, they believed it. Yeah. They really believed it. Like, and in the 1970s, the, the world economy was absolutely thrown by the oil crisis. When the oil-producing nations, like, limited the supply of oil, it was one of the things that brought apart the Soviet Union was that they couldn't couldn't get oil, they couldn't afford it, they didn't have the money to pay for it, like, all of these things. And you had this horrible stagflation period in the West where inflation went up but there were none of the, uh, you know. uh, Counter-cyclical measures. Counter-cyclical measures. Like, and it was, I saw a, I mean, and this would be getting close to 10 years ago now, um, Wayne Swan and the former Shadow Chancellor of the UK, Ed Balls, who I adore, as you well know, and they were saying that, you know, Labor parties around the world, socially democratic parties, they drank the Kool-Aid that neoliberalism was the fix to this horrible stagflation crisis, you know, and that's why that's that was the logic that made, that informed uh, Treasury decisions in Australia under Malcolm Fraser that was all inherited by Hawke and Keating. This was the advice that everybody mm. was getting, that you had to do, the oh, you had to, oh, this is counterinflationary, and this it, and that. And, there were, and it was a different set of circumstances. You had the obviously the oil crisis, but you did have double-digit wage increases as well. You did have occasions where there was 15, 20% wage increases in some industries, where there where there was protectionist barriers to trade that meant it was harder to move capital, it was harder to move goods. And it was hard to get loans. Like yeah. One of the things that inspired Paul Keating was the fact that his father was a boilermaker who wanted to start his own business and could not get a loan. You know, bank deregulation and those kind of things. A lot of the things that we look back on now and go, oh, my God, why was that decision made? Why on earth did a Labor government privatise quantum? Why on earth was banking deregulated? Why did we float the dollar? Why did we do this? Why did we enter into these trade deals? Because there were structural problems with the economy. And when the oil crisis happened, it was international chaos. Yeah. International chaos. And Milton Friedman, who'd previously been considered an 
absolute wacky loon loon yeah. for his, you know, radical free market ideology was suddenly seen as this guru who could solve everybody's problems. And loosening the screws on some regulations did, like, stop the inhibition mm. of capital flow and the rest of it. Obviously, powerful capitalist interests exploited mm. every new opportunity that they had. But we live in a reality now that we can look back on that time and go, yeah, the price of oil going up 400% was probably like yeah. quite a, you know, boomerang in the cherry processor. You know, not something anybody expected to happen, kind of a bit difficult to deal with and with unexpected consequences. But it only happened that in that time. Yeah, that's right. That's- you know, and the idea that they're still – Absolutely insistent that this stuff works. It's just, it's like they've all been frozen in stone. Yeah. Well, they have. They have been fr- frozen in stone. They, they've, they've <laughs> been the- ringing a cherry presser. I, I don't even know where that came I from. I know. I knew I couldn't quite, I didn't know how to respond to that. Um, it's a but good you one. smile. I did. Because you have beautiful manners. Well, because I think it's funny. It, it, <laughs> it, you know, as serious as all this stuff is, like, yeah. <laughs> It is very serious. It is very, very serious. There are real consequences to this. You know, and one of the things I want to point out is that Australia has come off a decade of waste and mismanagement. Over the seven years that- This is a beautiful segue. This is definitely one of your best. Oh, the the New Zealand accent came. Did you hear that? I did. Definitely. Over the seven years that Phil Lowe has been Reserve Bank Governor, we've also had some of the most wasteful- negligent, possibly corrupt Commonwealth government uh, that Australia has seen in a very, very long time. And so to a degree, while economic times were good, things have been able to be glossed over. So Phil Lowe didn't really need to do that much and, in fact, was discouraged perhaps from doing that much by the kind of rorts and mismanagements that took place during the Morrison era. And I call the whole time of the last decade under Abbott, Turnbull and Morrison, the Morrison era, because he was a senior cabinet figure under Abbott. He was treasurer under Turnbull and he was, of course, prime minister in his own right. So Morrisonism was ingrained in that government from the get-go. And then your uh, masthead of record, The Guardian, uh, has uncovered just some horrendous misuse of taxpayer funds by Scott Morrison uh, and his government. And and it it goes to how they perceive, how these neoliberals perceive taxpayers, how they perceive government programs as a mechanism to reward those who believe what they believe, to deny those who don't support them, uh, and to essentially give uh, taxpayer-funded welfare to those who don't need it, big corporations, uh, large uh, large for-profit entities. Because the Audit Office has now found that only two of 63 community health and hospital program projects were suitable. This was a $2 billion program set up in 2019 in the lead-up to the election there, the department was finding out about programs being approved via the media. Uh, The big story that The Guardian has broken is that one of these projects, a $4 million project, 
was given to an organisation that has since been subject to a West Australian parliamentary inquiry into abuse and the use of conversion therapy, exorcism, and other debunked, somewhat medieval religious practices, rather than using scientific methods for helping people with addiction uh, and with other uh, with other social uh, problems that they might be trying to overcome. Morrison declared on radio that this organisation that got $4 million to start- Can I say it? Can I do the quote? Yeah, please. This organisation had completely, completely captured his heart. Now, I personally think the lead there got buried that Scott Morrison apparently had a heart or at least thought he had one is, I mean, that, I, I mean, I remember the Morrison era all too well, and that's whew, that's a hell of a thing to learn, Ben. Well, I mean, this, so this organisation in Western Australia was called the Esther Foundation. Esther. Esther Foundation. I always have trouble saying that. I don't know why. Um <laughs> because you're godless. It was. It, I mean, it's pretty shocking. The, the West Australian government parliamentary inquiry found uh, emotional, psychological abuse, coercive uh, practices, suppression and conversion practices used against LGBTQA plus people, culturally harmful practices, uh, medical complaints that went ignored, uh, people being alienated from their families, the use of physical restraints and assault, and sexual assault. Yeah, that would be pretty much the gamut of bad. Yeah. So Morrison said uh, he announced the $4 million grant to this organisation on the 8th of March 2019, which is, of course, International Women's Day. I guess they were lucky not to be met with bullets, Ben. Well, he said, I I mean, I'm going to quote these. These are quotes. As, As you already mentioned, he said, I've got to say the Esther Foundation completely, 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 captured my heart this week. This is an organisation that is transforming women's lives at the most practical level by ensuring that they understand something that can never be taken away from any woman, and that is their unique value, their unique worth. I think you'll find patriarchy does an absolutely fantastic job at taking away women's unique value and unique worth because it actually takes it away collectively. If you have a social order, and that could be on a micro level or a macro order, that privileges a patriarchal set of values that holds that women are inferior, help meets, as some bits of the Bible say, um, you know, and some religious organisations, which Scott Morrison may or may not be affiliated to, holds women in this subservient uh, position, you know, conferring mm. head, like head of the householdism on a patriarchal male figure, uh, generally women's value gets absolutely written down across the board. I mean, this is just disgusting. It is enraging. And the idea that $4 million of taxpayer money was given to an organisation that was restraining uh, people, sexually assaulting them, forcing conversion practice, like it is like this is a scandal. This is a serious national scandal. And it comes as part of a broader scandal around this community health and hospitals program Uh, because the audit office has looked into it, uh, obviously on the back of this West Australian government uh, inquiry into this one particular uh, uh, receiver of this this money. Uh, The audit office found only two of the 63 major projects were deemed highly suitable, which was the minimum criteria for the department to make a recommendation uh, that they be funded. Uh, I mean, this is this is just phenomenal. Uh, the 
34 of the 63 projects did not have supporting proposals at all. Only 29 went through the official expression of interest process. Uh, as I said, only two were found to be highly suitable. Another 20 were approved despite the department recommending against them. And one project went ahead that was never assessed at all. Now, the the uh, the Esther Foundation project uh, was apparently approved despite the fact that the... Uh, the supporting documentation was apparently uh, just copied straight from their media profile uh, and an activity plan uh, that was available on their website. So, I mean, this is to get $4 million for basically a media release uh, and having the Prime Minister come and visit your religious, uh, quasi-religious organisation is a scandal to have a $2 billion program uh, which is doling out money, uh, 70% of which, uh, 70% of these programs were in marginal seats, even though most of the money went to safe seats, uh, safe liberal seats by the looks of it from what, I, what I've been able to tell. Uh, Mark Butler, who's the Labor Health Minister now in charge of this department, as you can imagine. Very sensible man who must have confronted this discovery. I'm just imagining someone like Mark Butler finding out this was going on. Oh. Let's just sit with that for a moment. Uh, you know, I think I think Brennan Murphy, who's the Secretary of the Department, uh, would have been called in for a very sharp uh, conversation. And, look, he has said, these are his quotes, there are a, quote, a number of challenges, in part due to the rapid genesis and implementation of projects. Genesis, the, interesting choice of word. That the former government selected and announced. Um, Mark Butler has said and that the former government, Morrison's government, announced so many projects without assessment or guidance and at such speed the department was forced to monitor the media to know which programs had been selected. Yeah, that's a problem. That's not how democracy is supposed to work. Um, I just want to underline with the Esther Foundation, just so I want us all to be Mark Butler. I want us all to be that, you know, highly competent, evidence-based cabinet minister. Ben and I got to know Mark Butler at the Paris Climate Conference did, yes. um, where I interviewed him and totally the kind of politician who is across the data, who's read the study, who's like considered like the, sort of a very data-based kind of guy. And these are the allegations that came out uh, about the Esther Foundation. There were allegations of exorcisms, of forced prayer meetings, and of residents being told their homosexuality was caused by demons or was responsible for suicidal behaviour. Yeah, not something that Mark Butler is going to find a lot of time to fund. Caused you are gay because of demons is not, that's, where does that exist? On what plane of human experience does that exist? It comes news to my mum. Uh, yeah, I know, right? Um, the allegations also include uh, they were, these women were alienated and isolated from family. Their communications were monitored uh, and there were reports of people being tied to beds, locked in and sexually assaulted. I mean, this sounds like the Morrison government funded a cult, right? Captured my heart. Captured, completely, completely captured my heart. 
It sounds like he's funding a cop. What kind of person gets their heart captured by people who are tying vulnerable and marginalised young women to beds and sexually assaulting them? So when we talk about the state of the economy and the decisions that get made and the policy processes, you know, this is why you and I are so hell-bent on stressing there are real and genuine differences between Labor and the non-Labor parties. Yeah, they're pretty genuine. And, and, and the appointments made by, you know, the Morrison era, uh, like Phil Lowe, uh, you know, they demonstrate a set of beliefs that are different. A cultural experience which is cut off from anything resembling like reason or evidence or data. It is. And I'm not for a moment saying Phil Lowe knew about this program or this organisation. I'm not making that assertion at all, right? Mm-hmm. What I'm saying is that in an environment. But I don't hang out with anyone who thinks demons make you gay. No, I don't I do not do that either, right? <laughs> like, you know so, what I mean? I don't move in those circles. So I'm not. I'm like, hey, Scott, how are you? Oh, hey, Marianne. Uh, you know, many good demons who make people gay recently. Look. <laughs> So I'm not I'm not engaging in that. Yeah, and we're getting the Bahamas as, for Christmas. You know, I'm not engaging in that as part of how I view the economy or the mechanisms by which we manage the economy. It's not part of the general thought process. You know, so <laughs> it's a it's an important distinction, right? Is that we change the government, you change the country. Now we are a year in to Labor. This is only just coming out, right? The auditor's office has now gone through this and gone, hey, Mark, Minister Butler, probably got Minister Butler, doubt they call him Mark. There's a bit of a problem Buddy, with this thing. Mate, now his We auditor- need to talk to you about something. We think you should sit down. Yeah. Here's a question. So Scott Morrison, infamously, yeah. as Minister for Social Services, did a deal with our friends, the Greens, because there are only two political parties in this country. There is the Labor Party and the anti-Labor parties uh, in order to cut the pension. Correct. to 300,000. 300,000 senior Australians. Absolutely outrageous. And I just I just want to ask everybody involved in that decision, how do you feel now knowing that you were taking economic advice from someone who gave $4 million to an organisation that will tell people that demons make them gay? It's pretty phenomenal, isn't it, right? Like we need to... Do you think a person who gives $4 million to that organisation is the best place to make decisions about pension rates? And this is, and this is or not... Or taxation. And this or is, the environment. And this is not like some arm's length, oh, you know, it was done in the deep, darkest bowels of the department. It captured, captured my heart. He, he went on radio. He, he, he went there and he made announcements. He was like... He was there. I am he had literally, gone to this place. Literally, most it's, it, it it is this really strange hybrid, the modern right, that has married free market neoliberal economics with just the most wackadoo, culty folks on the family Christian right. La 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 la. Yeah, it is la 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 la. That's what it is. It is literally la 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 because I know for a fact that they practice speaking in tongues in the congregations that Scott Morrison hangs out in. And and this weird because I was just thinking I am genuinely surprised their response to climate change wasn't to give everybody a free arc. But then of course that would be spending. That would be infrastructure spending. Yeah, yeah. You can't have that. Oh, neoliberals won't like that. 
No, no. And it's like this is why the world centre-right, like anywhere with a centre-right government, has just crossed over into like social mania. Like, mm. or, and the, the Trump years, it's all explained by this just the world's worst marriage of belief systems. It's pretty phenomenal that the same people who want to blame workers for the excess profits of corporations are also happy. Blaming to- demons for making people gay. I mean, we cannot <laughs> underline that a month. Happy Pride Month, everyone. It's a very strange set of political beliefs. Now, people will say, well, hang on, Ben. I know a liberal who's fiscally conservative and socially quite, you know, wouldn't believe in all those things. And that's fine. I am sure there are those people and that they exist. But the reality is those people no longer control the Liberal Party. Nope. Those people no longer have a a voice, a strong enough voice in the Liberal Party in the shape of Simon Birmingham to actually stop Scott Morrison giving those kinds of organisations $4 million. They no longer have a strong enough voice to stop the appointment of people who are high priests of monetary policy as opposed to economic realists who look at the facts, look at the data, examine the trends and go, this is the right lever to pull at the right time. It's just so funny because, like, Menzies understood how to hold government. Yeah. Like, absolutely. What was it, Did it for the longest time ever. Yeah, longest time ever. And took on a bunch of economic positions that weren't traditional conservative positions, like raising taxes on, on the wealthy during a period of high inflation, like maintaining full employment policy, like keeping the framework of the economy that had been established by Curtin and Chifley that kept people in work mm. and guaranteed a basic comfortable household standard of living through the actual structure of of the economy, of the bureaucracy of society and make government a major employer and understood that if you kept things that people liked, things would probably be a bit functional and stable and they'd vote for you again. Yeah. Like, and if you did your occasional wackadoo things like trying to outlaw the Communist Party, which was undemocratic and unhinged, the people would probably whip you a bit. But if you kept things under control, you might lose a referendum, but you'd win an election. And now those pe- those people have long left the Liberal Party. Good Lord, I've said it before. The moment that Julia Banks was out the door, that was it. Their last, the last anchor they had mm. to the beach was severed. The rope totally frayed. Off they sailed to la 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 land. Uh, and I do think it's hilarious that people keep thinking about Bridget Archer from Tasmania uh, as as sort of the great hope for the Liberal Party. Bridget Archer, who is, of course, ostracised by members of her own caucus while in Canberra and who has had to come out and say, people keep referring to us as the LNP, as shorthand for the Liberal Party. That's the brand in Queensland. I joined the Liberal Party, not the LNP. And it's like, I'm sorry, Bridget, but if your party's going to behave like the LNP, if it looks like the LNP, and it's it dominated like the by LNP, the LNP, then it probably is the LNP. Oh man! Um, now look, we're not going to get into all of that because I mean we've got demons to meet later. We're going to make everybody <laughs> go. Well, speaking of demons, WA is of course as close to a one-party state as Australia has. as democracy will allow. <laughs> frankly, uh, because of how bad the demons of the Liberal and the National Party were in that state for such a long period of time. You know, I think there's compelling evidence to suggest that demons are not on our side. No. No. The no. seat sniffing, I believe, was on their side Yeah, the, sne- the Troy Buswell, the, s- the seat sniffer. Imagine that being your political legacy. You are the man 
who sniffed this. I think was he treasure oh, at the time. I don't remember. I don't know. Oh, oh, the I fact remember. I remember his name because I had to read it twenty times to believe that a human adult had literally sniffed someone's seat in a very movie. weird, very strange fellow. Look, um, but someone who's not a strange fellow is the new premier of Western Australia, Roger Cook. Roger Cook. Roger Cook, of course, was deputy leader uh, under the great Mark McGowan. Uh, Comrade McGowan, as he was called by Comrade uh, Andrews. Comrade Andrews, Comrade McGowan. Which I... blew up conservative Twitter, let me I just tell it. you. I love it. Um, but Roger Cook, 15 years as uh, deputy, he's now the leader. If you're freaked out by the term comrade, just wait until I explain the concept of equality. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't think Twitter can handle it. Look, he, uh, he only won his seat in 2008 by only 300 votes. So this is a guy who's been doing the work for a long time. Uh, he's been in a marginal position. He knows what it is to be in opposition. He knows what it is to do the hard yards. He's now the the leader of the Labor Party, uh, supported uh, quite strongly by the United Workers Union, by the Australian Manufacturing Workers Union, uh, and by the right over there as well, the SDA, the Shop Assistance uh, Union as well. He essentially won the leadership unopposed. Uh, he's announced his new cabinet this week. Uh, not a huge amount of change, it's fair to say. Some some good uh, addition, additions. So uh, the uh, his new deputy premier, uh, Rita Safoti, uh, has added treasury because people might remember Mark McGowan was both premier and treasurer of Western Australia. Which is unusual. Might be part of the reason why he did suffer a bit of burnout because that's a long time to do both those portfolios. Uh, spreading the load a bit more is uh, Roger Cook, new premier. Probably a good idea, probably for the best. Of course, WA will go to the polls in roughly 20 months' time. Uh, you would expect, given the vast majority that they hold in terms of just sheer numbers, and the size of some of those margins is in a starting from a very good place. Uh, and of course, Western Australia, thanks in no small part to both the mining boom and a overly generous GST deal provided to them by Scott Morrison as an attempt to hold on to seats in WA. Which he lost. Which he still lost, uh, is one of the few states. That, I don't think the demons like him. No, I don't think they do. Uh, he. It starts from a good position uh, and uh, is likely to, of course, uh, win, but he has the only uh, state budget that is in surplus because for the rest of the country during COVID, everybody else went into deficit to, you know, keep people employed and livelihoods and all, all the things that we tried to keep going. WA. Locked its borders. Locked its borders, had all that sweet, sweet mining money, got that, you know, juicy Morrison-era deal. So many juicy Morrison-era deals. Like wherever Morrison thought there was good things for Morrison in a deal, he was happy to use our money to pay for it. It is just spectacular. Like I don't. I wonder if he will go down in, in history as the Australian who spent the most money to be the least popular. <laughs> like it is amazing that he handed out so much money and yet at no point did it turn into votes. Yeah, so weird. So mm. congratulations to Roger Cook. Congratulations to all the members of his uh, cabinet. A shout-out to my former student politics comrades, Stephen Dawson and John Kerry, who are cabinet ministers in Western Australia. It is. It, I do recommend anybody have the student politics experience. You just will be amazed at who you know 
when you are my age. Uh, and I want to give just, uh, not that I know this person, but they are new to the Cabinet, uh, a person by the name of David Michael, who is the new member, who is the new Minister for Ports, Local Government, Road Safety, and Minister Assisting the Minister for Transport. Uh, it's always, uh, I'm sure, a great moment when you first go into Cabinet. All the rest of the Cabinet appointees were there under Mark McGowan. Uh, Mr. David Michael is the new uh, Cabinet member over there in WA, Van. I love WA. I know you do. I haven't been yet. You know, which is funny because I'm going to tell a very personal story about Ben and I. Ben and I had been together for several years. We were in Paris on top of the Eiffel Tower in a gentle snowstorm, no marriage proposal, on a beach in Fouquet at twilight, watching the sky turn purple, no proposal. Oh, you know, on a sunny day, having drinks on the foreshore of the Sydney Opera House, no proposal. I went to Perth for two weeks to do a theatre development and Ben proposed over the phone. So Perth will always have a special place in my heart. I missed you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm glad we shared that with people. I'm sure they will think less of me as a result. (laughs) Thank you for that. Look, we're going to go into good news. Uh, the good news is that our- About renewable targets. Yeah. So we're, we are a step closer to hitting our 80% renewables by 2030. Uh, and this is another good news story from our great friend, Daniel Conway. We love you, Daniel. You send us great stories. And if you want to be like Daniel and send us stories, you can. You can send them to that email address, the week on Wednesday at gmail.com, or you can send them to our Facebook page as well. Uh, look, so- this is about the uh, second undersea cable linking Tasmania's uh, hydro-powered grid to the mainland. Uh, this is a $4 billion project. The Australian Energy Regulator uh, has said that the decision to start cost and revenue determinations uh, is underway. This will generate 1,500 million watts of transmission. Uh, the... This is a fundamental part of how we link up the grids around Australia. Uh, the Marinus Link, uh, as it's called, uh, was given a boost last year when Federal Labor revealed it would use part of the Rewiring the Nation program to support uh, the, uh, the Tasmanian Link. The Clean Energy Council has said the transmission projects like uh, Marinus will unlock massive investment serve as a game changer for Australia's clean energy. This is a quote from Clean Energy Council's Kane Thornton, who said, a smart, modern and strong transmission system is a crucial piece of the jigsaw puzzle to deliver a low-cost and more reliable and clean energy power system and transition Australia to become a clean energy superpower. Australia is rapidly transitioning to a more flexible, low-cost, clean energy system and transmission projects such as uh, Marinus and Karanglink and energy storage play a crucial role in Australia's energy future. So the good news is that that project is proceeding. It is going through the early work stage uh, and one step closer to 80% van. I love it. I love it. I love it. It's all about momentum. This is what you and I say. Like the start is not going to be perfect, but if you want to get to perfect, you actually got to start. you got to start. You got to find and those, they, and you gotta, they fi- you got to roll the ball to create. If you want to create an avalanche, you've got to start off with a ball. That's it. 
And that didn't really work either. It's no, sort of you, but you got to roll. I'm very tired. Cold. It's very cold. Have I mentioned it's cold? The dog is already asleep. So, Van, of course, our show people like they share. We got a lovely message today from someone who just gave us uh, a one-off contribution. Who said that they give contributions when they can. We really thank everyone who does that. And we just want said- to acknowledge that sharing on Facebook or on Twitter or your, whatever your preferred social media, whatever the children do, I don't know. Email it. Email it. Like I don't think you can send it as a letter. I don't think a podcast can be sent as a letter. I, I, well, I mean, you could translate it into Otter and then send it as a text document, Ben. There oh, you go. Man. But um, we do really appreciate it and that really helps us. Yeah, because we do – want to get the message out to as many people as possible so we do spend money promoting the show to new audiences to get people in the door so they listen to the message they hear what you're hearing right now and there are people who make a contribution people pay a buck a week people pay 10 bucks a month people pay 20 bucks a month and they've been doing that now some of them for over a year so a huge thank you to them and we give our cadre they pay 20 bucks a month and our extend the reach supporters who pay 10 bucks a month uh, a shout out, and Van, you've got those lists of names there. I do. Joe Lockery, Steph Karina Balliat, Jane C. Campbell, Leona Given, Shane Horsfall, Terry Butler, Jack Powell, Gal Ferguson, Rebecca Fanning for Longman, Matthew Hadley, Colum Kelly, Ali Vance, Mary M, Love Your Work, Yeet Yeti, At Antio Balden, Claire, Jason Dallas, Camille, Akiva Boris, Kristen Sakluna, Gabe Kramer, Stephen Aitken, Trish Corey, Greg Miller, Kathy Birch, Fiona McNeil, At Jed Carney, Kristen Cole, At Ross Kenner, 888, Tamara James Bromman, Punch Drunk Veteran, Jenny Foster 7, Bromman Cockington, Andrew Pascoe, Cassandra Tui, Ian Hampson, no Twitter for me, Hannah A. Honda, Matt Bush, Richard Sands, Glenn Robbie, Brush Daniel Skyler, Phillips, Linda Cartwright, Leanne Shingles, I don't have Twitter, my name is Susan Myers, Kerry Nash 20, Billy 3 McCabe, Nerissa Simon at Katagal, Laura Nash and Banjo at Narunga Man, John Sharp and Peter Bath and Louise Watson, also known as Red, White and Blue Lou. And our Extend the Reach supporters are Helen, Rosie Elliott, Lara, Robert Notfield, One, Michael Wales, Sandra Kelly, Dorena, Kathy Hay, Donald Vaughan, Damien Marley, Michelle Norton, Rodney Slap, Cameron Tra Dragon, Daniel Crazy Keza, John DeHaan, at Ange Pennell, Anna Uran, Kathy Burgess, Melanie Dinning, Jody A, Penelope Judge, Jane Holloway, Spirit of Anger and Hope, at K Not, at Didhams, Sharon Kelly, Beck and Lola, Richard Graver, Summon Vita, W Nandita, Hannah Moore, Louise Hawker, Megan Weckett, Graham, Oxley, Beck, Cody, Tracy, Lucas, Sandy Honan, at Galvez, Greg Martin, Trainer, Amy Fawcett, not on Twitter. Sarah, Eliane and Andrew, Ivor Spillett, Andrew Bryan, Peter O.C., Linda Samhead, Deep Kip Patterson, Lizette Twizzle, Buncombe Basher, Katie Ward, The Real, Real Never Long Body, Sandy Baumgut, Adna, Sandy B, Renee McGee, Stuart Munn, Blagoya, Matthew Case, Mikey Mark, at Vic and Bit, Adrian Valente, Metz Ritza, at Carriedale 68, Frank Nehus, Erica Pizzuti, Joe Lapino, Rachel Fitzpatrick, Kerry Arthur and Pauline Bate. A huge congratulations to all of our contributors. Of course, if you go to buymeacoffee.com, slash week on Wednesday, you can become a contributor. And our contributors do get the episodes emailed directly to them and you can have that happen for you as well, along with links. You can have that happen for you! Along with links and, of course, Van's latest articles as and when they come out. Van, that's it for the show. There will be no weekend wrap this weekend as we are having a much-needed four-day break oh my god i can't believe it i can't believe we're actually doing it so we thank everyone for your listening and we look forward to you uh joining us next wednesday for the week on wednesday but until then love you vanny i love you too bye Bye.